Hey everyone, I'm Ube Shibander and this is my podcast port, where we'll talk international affairs, geopolitics, media, and war with some of the world's leading minds, usually my friends, and every once in a while, the troublemakers, from our base of operations here in Istanbul, where the East and West collide. All right, and we're live. With me is my battle buddy for for many, many years, Michael Pregent, former defense intelligence analyst and current expert on Iraq and Iran and U.S. policy, senior fellow at Hudson Institute and all-around great American and great Floridian. How are you, Michael? <laughs> great Texan. Texan who happens great to be Great Texan. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't defected yet to Florida. No, 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 no. It's a nice place to visit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, buddy. Well, how are you? Thanks for coming on the second podcast. Oh, great. Great, man. And you're doing great work out there. So thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks, Things are brother. going great. No, I appreciate it. Well, it's very timely having you on. So you've... You know, you've been in the field. We've been, you know, deployed to Iraq together. You've been to Afghanistan, and you know, you're you're a keen observer of what's happening right now in Iraq and what's happening with Iran and Iran's militias in the region, and of course Washington. So I thought I would start start there first. You know, just to get sort of your your assessment of you know just how how is Washington doing right now? How would you rate the foreign policy when it comes to Middle East? When it comes to what's happening with Iran and of course Iraq? I mean, can you? Could you ever imagine when you were first deployed to Iraq that we would that the U.S. military would still be engaged? I mean, what is it now? Fifteen years later, seventeen seventeen years later, seventeen and, years later, and unbelievable. Uh, it, it's unbelievable uh, to Iraqis as well. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, the Iraqi general of two thousand three has literally set across from. 17 different Americans over the last 17 years, Ube, with 17 different strategies, 17 different recommendations. Now, this officer would be at the battalion or brigade level, right? But if you're if you were a senior officer, then you've seen what seven iterations of a of a General Petraeus, uh, four presidents now, well, three presidents, and uh, you know just all these changes in in foreign policy. So the way Iraq looks now. Uh, I had an co- opportunity to talk to General Petraeus uh, at, at the Manama Dialogues, uh, and I said, "Sir, you know Iraq, everything you tried to stop in 2007 is on steroids." And uh, and he said at the time, "No, Iraq's never been better." And uh, he was basing this information off a conversation he had with Brett McGurk. <laughs> so you know, I said, "Well, sir, everything." Again, I reiterated everything we tried to stop in 2007 is now on steroids. We have a Designated terrorist organization, AH, Asab Ahol Haq, you and I both work those guys, uh, that have 15 seats in parliament. A designated terrorist organization with voting rights. A designated terrorist organization that's part of a bigger uh, terrorist political party, the Fatah organization, mm-hmm. uh, with Kitab Hezbollah in it, uh, that have voting rights and can determine Iraqi policy, that have saturated the Iraqi security forces that on December 27th killed an American. And I think the good thing about U.S. foreign policy since December 27th is Qasem Soleimani, uh, the leader of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, forces, mm-hmm. Quds Force, who's no longer with us, uh, and Abu Mehdi al the, the leader of uh, Kitab Hezbollah and the deputy commander for the Hashim al-Shabi, 
uh, both got targeted. That was a big deal because I remember both in the Bush administration and in the Obama administration, there were many in the intelligence community and the policymaking community. And, you know, you had mentioned Brett McGurk. Brett McGurk started off in the George Bush administration as a especially Iraq advisor. You know, many were counseling not to take Soleimani out of the battlefield, but President Trump did it. Yeah, and uh, back then, at least Soleimani didn't believe that we wouldn't target him at the time. He was still considered the shadow general. You know, Ube, he was not there taking selfies like he was during the ISIS campaign. You and I both know that. He was in the shadows. He was the, the general that was talked about in the coffee shops in Baghdad that Qasem Soleimani is in Iraq. Uh, and, you know, the whispers. So, you know, we always had to deal with perception in Iraq and perception rules. Uh, but in the ISIS campaign, the, the shadow general became the selfie general. And there was no pattern of, of intel or no pattern of life analysis done when it came to targeting Soleimani. He was there all the time. It wasn't he was hard there, to target. He was there all the time. And this was years before he became famous. Like, as you said, before he became the, uh, the Instagram uh, commander, when he came out of the yeah. shadows and went into social media. Yeah, I mean, he, he was so brazen in his... his um, confidence and his confidence that the U.S. wouldn't attack him, that I'm told that when a, when a U.S. Uh, 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 pr- uh, government aircraft would land in Erbil, uh, bringing a, de- a delegation in to talk to the KRG, that his aircraft was on the same tarmac. He would land his plane also. He was, he was that brazen, just that, that, that show of, of, I wouldn't call it show of force, but a show of arrogance, of hubris, that the Americans wouldn't attack him. And I think it was communicated to him through congressional testimony, open testimony, through comments in the media, uh, through comments to uh, the press, that he couldn't be targeted under the authorized use for military force. And in that, his, his Shia militia surrogates believed that they wouldn't be targeted. And all of that changed January 2nd. We still think Case Kazali is in hiding. The guy, the guy, every time he hears a plane fly over, uh, uh, cowers under a desk. So for, for our listeners, give us a quick background on Case Kazali and when you first started dealing with guys like Case Kazali, who were one of Qasem Soleimani's main uh, prodigies in Iraq. Yeah, so, so Case Kazali was a, uh, was a lieutenant. He, he's, he, he's a Shia militant. He was a lieutenant in the uh, Jaysh al-Mehdi movement or the Muqtad al-Sadr's uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, of course, a uh, very prominent uh, Shia cleric in quotations uh, in Iraq, and, but never smart enough to lead the movement, at least never deemed smart enough by Iran to lead the movement. And this is where Case Ghazali comes into play. Qasem Soleimani identified the talent within uh, Jaysh al-Mehdi, uh, the army of Mehdi is what that means. And in that talent, he, he pulled out um, Case Kazali. And he did that early, early on. And when Sadr proved to be undisciplined in carrying out attacks against the Americans, because Sadr would carry out attacks against the Iraqi security forces also, uh, Soleimani created a new militia with somebody that he trusted to simply carry out attack on Americans. And that was Case Kazali's League of the Righteous or Asab al-Haq. Now, Case Kazali, when you, on one of your yes. deployments to Iraq, was captured by the American military. Yes, yes. It was captured uh, for conducting an operation, uh, the Karbala 
operation conducted with Lebanese operator uh, Musa Dakduk from Lebanese Hezbollah, a planned operation to kidnap five Americans, to take them back to Iran, and then trade them for four captive uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officers uh, that were captured by uh, US forces in Iraq. Uh, that operation was led by Case Ghazali's men. Uh, it, it failed in that they weren't able to successfully get them to Iran, but they, it failed in, it was, a, it was a failure in the operation, but what they did uh, changed the US uh, view of these militias. Mm. Uh, they ended up executing four Americans uh, in the back of uh, SUVs, uh, zip tied, shot them, and then they ran away. Another American was killed on the objective uh, by diving on a, on a concussion grenade. Uh, he, he was killed in the, in, in the raid. So that was the first time the U.S. forces looked at this militia capability as something that we definitely had to deal with other than the rocket attacks and the, and the IEDs and the explosively formed penetrators known as the EFPs. We were now seeing complex kidnapping operations with Lebanese Hezbollah guidance, training, and commanders directing Iraqis to conduct these sophisticated operations. And Case Ghazali was, was captured along with his brother, along with Musa Duke. And then we uh, released them over time as part of a so They were released yeah. circa 2010. So, so nine was Laith, uh, 10 was Ghazali, and 11 was Duktuk. They were released, and as soon as we captured them, the, uh, Iran started asking, demanding that Maliki put, ask the U.S. to release them. And this is something that General Petraeus said, listen, this is the first time that we have evidence. Uh, here's, here's evidence that these guys were involved. Right. And Petraeus took a laptop to Prime Minister Maliki and showed right. the direct connection to Qasem Soleimani, the IRGC, Lebanese Hezbollah, and to Case Ghazali's League of the Righteous. Now, what's interesting is that I remember when Duck Duke was released and Qasem Soleimani was released. This is early on in the uh, Pre uh, President Obama's administration. And one of the people that we heard a lot from on this issue was Brett McGurk, uh, who eventually became President Obama's uh, special envoy on Iraq and eventually for Syria. And what I remember, I remember you were up in arms about it when many in the military community were up in arms um, when the administration released Kais Ghazali, based on the pretext that, well, he's being released to the Iraqi government, to Baghdad, and that this was a sovereign government. Yeah, well, you interviewed uh, Jay Solomon recently, right? Yes. And, and Jay Solomon uh, talks about the secret negotiations that were taking place between the Obama administration and the Islamic Republic of Iran. And in that was a was a, uh, a challenge to the Obama administration to show the Supreme Leader that he was serious about negotiating. And we saw a wave of releases that would have never been released uh, in Iraq, uh, a wave of, of, of uh, dedicated uh, terrorists opposed to the United States mission, commanded, directed, funded, and trained by Iran with blood on their hands released released in masses. And in that, you got Case Ghazali and Musa Dak Duke released. And uh, I believe that it was directly tied to the ongoing negotiations for the Iran deal. Mm. So 
eventually Kais Kazale would come back. He would become, he would go from this one militant commander to the main guy in Iraq following the uh, military strike against Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. So it yeah, seems so that everything has come full circle. I mean, since you, since you were deployed in Iraq, you know, when Qais Kazali first was arrested, this was, you know, that was 2006, 2007. Yeah, 2007. Um, the thing about Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mehdi al-Muhandis, Abu Mehdi al-Muhandis' death may actually be more important than Qasem Soleimani's death in Iraq in a lot of ways. Um, Mohandas kept all these militias from fighting each other, kept them all focused. He was he gave them confidence mm -hmm. uh, in themselves. And now that both he and Qasem Soleimani are gone, um, Case Ghazali doesn't doesn't appear as confident as he as he used to be. Now you're right. Iran wants him to be the main guy in Iraq, but Muqtadr al-Sadr wants to be Iraq's Nasrallah. I push back against this narrative that Muqtadr al-Sadr is a nationalist. Uh, some of my colleagues have said that he's the only thing stopping Iran from taking over Iraq, and that's just not true. And you, I believe you know that to be true also, uh, or not to be true. Um, there's a rivalry between Muqtadr al-Sadr and, and Case Ghazali. Mm. In Case Ghazali's interrogation reports that are now unclassified, Case Ghazali was not very flattering about uh, Muqtadr al-Sadr. I think there's there's a rivalry there. I think there's a lot of uh, divisions and, and schisms and fractures between the uh, militia alliance that Qasem Soleimani and Mohandas put together. And we're not exploiting that. The Iraqis are not exploiting that. And they're not able to exploit that because of the Badr Corps, because of Hadi al-Amri. But back to back to Case Kazali, he's, he went from no designation to full-on designation the day after Soleimani was targeted. And that's a big deal because, you know, I have testified in the past, as have others, that that Qasem, or, uh, that Case Kazali should be designated and his organization should be designated because they killed Americans directly. They were Qasem Soleimani's premier proxy to kill Americans. They were given the most advanced techniques to do so, along with Kitab Hezbollah, who was already designated. And here we are 17 years later, American troops are still on the ground in Iraq. I mean, how many divisions at this point have has the American military trained and equipped in Iraq? But just how effective has it been, really, when you look at it from a sort of grand strategic perspective? The, the Iraqi security forces that you and I worked with during the surge no longer exist. Uh, Maliki basically pushed out any effective Kurdish or Sunni commander uh, going from 2009 to 2014, when he when he was able to do that, he basically uh, politicized the Iraqi security forces and made it a regime protection force, meaning a Maliki protection force. And that's why it caved when ISIS rolled into Mosul. Uh, our former boss, Derek Harvey, Derek Harvey and I wrote an op-ed June 12, 2014, blaming Maliki for for uh, the ISF's failure, the Iraqi security forces failure in Mosul because nobody was from Mosul in those units except mm. for the Jews, the soldiers. All the commanders were from Iraq, from Baghdad, from the Shia uh, areas of Baghdad, from Basra, from other places. And they, they literally said, we are not going to die in Mosul for these Sunnis. 
and they fell back. So the Iraqi security forces that you and I worked with mm. uh, no longer exist. And now I you mean, have a- That's a depressing thing to really it, think about. It's isn't a it? reality. And going back to Brett McGurk, Brett McGurk has denied this time and time again. Michael Knights has denied this time and time again. Uh, the Iraqi security forces, we should not confuse the willingness of the Iraqi security forces to go after ISIS with the willingness to go after IRGC Quds Force militias. They're not built to do that. They're built to go after Kurds. They're built to go after Sunnis. They're built to go after protesters. They are not built to go after Iran's militias because they are Iran's militias in that key positions have been penetrated. Uh, it, it's, not even, it's not even a secret. The saturation of border corps throughout the ranks, uh, throughout the intelligence uh, community uh, in Iraq, and these other militias that consistently brag that they can wear any uniform within the Iraqi security forces is a reality. Mm. It's the reason ISIS is still alive in the al-Qaeda model. It's a reason these militias have primacy over the government and they can kill protesters with impunity. And it's the reason they're now attacking American bases. So Iraqis all the sacrifices of, of men, the men and women who died, nearly 5,000 killed in action, tens of thousands wounded in action, some you know, with uh, damage that's going to last for the rest of their lifetime, um, all, you know, maybe a trillion dollars in expenditures for this war. And the Iraqi government, or at least Prime Minister Maliki, uses all those forces at the expense of the American taxpayer, essentially as a, to protect his own political interests and to eventually, and allows ISIS or Daesh to just roll into Mosul and then starts shooting protesters when they start taking to the streets calling for, for democracy. I mean- Electricity, for jobs, for water, for simple things. I mean, that's, that's wild. I mean, is it, is it worth it anymore from your perspective? What do you think? Well, well, Iraqis are telling us, telling us it is worth it. Let me, let, me, let me clarify that statement. Mm -hmm. For the first time in Iraq, the Sunni community, the Kurdish community, and the Shia community are, say, are doing these chants. Iraq Hura, Iraqis should be free. Uh, Iran Bara, Iran get out. And, and they're, 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 for, they're saying, okay, thanks for replacing Saddam. Uh, and thank you for giving Iraq to Iran. Let's tell you how to do this right. And we, can, we are still not paying attention today. 90% of the, of the Iraqi population wants a different government in Baghdad. 80% of that population wants it to have nothing to do with Iran. And we continue to do these negotiations where we believe Iran has a, a vote in who the Iraqi prime minister is. Mm. And I don't buy those arguments. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Qasem Soleimani or now Ismail Khani should not decide who the prime minister of Iraq is. And yet he actually blessed off on the latest PM designate, uh, Mustafa Kazemi. Mm. Now, if the IRGC Quds Force is okay with the prime minister, what should that tell you? You know, that's, that signal? that's sort of what drives me crazy, to be frank, because this reminds me exactly of the moment. Remember those negotiations that led to Maliki being placed as prime minister? Right, he was replacing uh, his okay. former boss in the Dawa party, yep. Ibrahim Jaffrey, right? And yes. at the time, everyone thought, oh, Maliki, he's, a, he's just a technocrat, he's a nice guy, he doesn't have his own militia, 
And then yep. Matt, how horribly many of us were, turned out to be wrong. Exactly. Iran builds strong men in Iraq. We don't. Now, we were able to do things uh, in the surge because we have 160,000 Americans on the ground. Even Iraqis told us, you can put in Iyad Alawi, you can force him in because you have 160,000 men on the ground. But as you and I both know, uh, Joe Biden and uh, President Obama told General Ordierno at the time, hands off, uh, let Maliki take it over because uh, they were in negotiations with Iran already uh, based on you know some conversations we've had. And also if you look at Jay Solomon's book, the, um, the thing about these weak candidates, uh, you know, Iran has a consistent 40 year strategy when it comes to Iraq and it's to gain influence and eventually make it a client state. It is succeeding. The United States since 2003 has had maybe six different strategies in Iraq that outside of the surge failed. The ISIS campaign uh, was, I, I consider it a failure and I'll tell you why. The counter ISIS because campaign. The counter ISIS campaign, I consider failure. it a failure. I'll tell you why. Mm -hmm. We have the wrong proxy force in Iraq and now it has primacy. That proxy force are the Shia militias tied to Tehran. Uh, we used the wrong proxy force in Syria uh, to go against ISIS, and that was the YPG. You and I both know from, from counterinsurgency strategy that was developed by McMaster and General Petraeus during the Iraq war, that the clear and hold force needs to be of the people, needs to be of the area you're clearing and holding so that it is accepted. Meaning if you're going against ISIS in Mosul, you better have a force from Mosul to take it on. Yeah, I mean, that's counterinsurgency 101. We never did that, Obey. We never did that in the ISIS campaign. And part of it was negotiated because we were now, this is 2014. We are one year away from the JCPOA being signed. And in those negotiations for American foot, um, an American footprint on the ground, it was the 5,000 American cap. And then we were to train whatever the Iraqi uh, government gave us to train. Mm -hmm. And we ended up building, helping them build two new divisions that were 90% Shia, that, did, uh, that were developed or created to go, to go into the Mosul operation. And Mosul's majority Sunni. Majority Sunni. At no time, remember at the time, Mosul is occupied by four to 6,000 ISIS fighters. It has a very conservative estimate, 300,000 military-aged males. Of that, 30,000 were in the Iraqi security forces. And at no time did we drop a leaflet and say, get to Taji, we'll give you one month back pay, one promotion, and we'll, we'll put you right back into the second Iraqi army division, uh, the third Iraqi army division, the first Iraqi army division, uh, into the special ops, into these other places you were at, and let's go kick some ISIS ass. We didn't do that one single time. Why didn't we? Why, why didn't we have at least a Brett focus? McGurk. I mean, we thought we would have learned those lessons, right? From the Brett, surge when we built Sunni forces on the ground, you know, it Brett stopped Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Yeah. Brett McGurk was lead on countering this suggestion, saying mm. it would take too long to train an Iraqi force to do this. We've already trained the Iraqis for, for what, at that time it would have been 11 years. And, and we don't have time to do that. We have to fight with the force we have. You never had to train a force Maliki basically got rid of U.S. trained, competent 
Iraqi security forces to include special operators. And all we had to do was do a call, go to Taji, two months back pay, one promotion, and let's go fight ISIS. And we didn't do it. And uh, we, wrote, we wrote this plan up in 2014. And we, uh, we talked about, when I say we, I was at the National Defense University at the time. And uh, it, just, it just never got any traction with the Obama administration. So it became pretty easy to criticize the policy. And then it simply got accelerated under, under Trump, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which is good for a bumper sticker campaign but not good for a counterinsurgency campaign. Well, we're seeing Daesh, we're seeing ISIS making a small comeback in the Iraqi desert, and even in the Syrian desert, in areas where instead of having yeah. a local Sunni force, we're bringing in a Kurdish militia from you know 600 kilometers away. Iraqi experts, Iraqi experts on the ground are saying this looks a lot like ISIS uh, to, uh, 2013, what we're seeing right now. Uh, where they started building, th- building things up, start recruiting, start intimidating, start making deals, conducting these low-level attacks. Uh, we're there. But then we have this new dynamic, Ube, that was created under the ISIS, the counter-ISIS campaign, and that is the Shia militias tied directly to Tehran. Now, I'm not one of these analysts that says, well, the Hashid al-Shabi are not all Shia, and they're not all tied to Iran. Right. I'm not talking about the Hashid al-Shabi, man. I'm talking about Kitab Hezbollah, A.H., Barakor, Kitab Imam Ali, uh, you know, Harakat Nujaba, and these other groups. I'm not talking about the Sistani volunteers. The Sistani volunteers were cannon fodder. The Sistani volunteers weren't paid. The Sistani volunteers were told, you guard a mosque while we go fight and take credit for things we had nothing to do with. And I also counter that narrative that the IRGC Quds Force militias were a key in defeating ISIS. They were not. They were not. They were. They were not. Because Iran to this day says if it wasn't for Iranian-backed militias, ISIS, the Islamic State, Daesh, would still be in control of large swaths of Iraq. We could have. We if the U.S. would have just simply done the Mosul operation by itself, we would have had Mosul under control within two months based on DoD estimates. But we wanted to use a partner in the Iraqi security forces. But Ube, when did when did they finally go into Mosul? Two and a half years later, man. Three years later. And then Fallujah, they let Fallujah sit there under ISIS control for two and a half years. It was never of interest to the Iraqi government to go into these Sunni areas and die. They wanted, they wanted them bombed, they wanted them decimated, but there was never an attempt to build a Sunni uh, force to go after ISIS. Uh, they went, at, went after uh, Hawija first, right? Then they went, they went after Beji first, then Hawija. Right, so the Sunni. Uh, they let Ramadi fall to ISIS. Mm-hmm. Remember how upset General Allen and Mattis were when Ramadi fell to ISIS while we were there providing air cover to the Iraqi security forces that wouldn't go into Ramadi, that wouldn't right. go into I Fallujah? Mean, and remember, these were cities, small cities in, western, in the western Iraq desert. I mean, how many Marines died to secure died those places? To storm those two yeah. cities, just two cities, yeah. small towns. And, you know, 250,000 in Fallujah, 500,000 in Ramadi, yet both of those towns were decimated by... Uh, barrage artillery from these militias, not pinpoint accurate targets based on intelligence, but just basically just bomb that, destroy it. That's where the cancer is. That's where the Sunnis are. Just destroy it. And that's what happened with Ramadi. 80% of that town of 500,000 people was destroyed for 1,600 ISIS fighters. It's like burning down a building because you you saw a roach in the kitchen. 
But how do you know, we not just... see this coming again, right? That we that Baghdad sectarian a sectarian government with a sectarian agenda uh, is it... using the most powerful military in the world to advance its own agenda. Exactly. This was this was a a, uh, a punishment campaign against Sunnis under the guise of fighting ISIS. How many how many Sunni Arabs died in the counter ISIS campaign in Iraq? It's 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 over a hundred thousand. How many ISIS fighters were in Iraq at any given time? It was fifteen thousand to twenty thousand fighters. You don't. You and I both know during the surge. Did we destroy one city block? No, did that's we, why the surge worked. We didn't do a thing. We let, we empowered the Sunnis. We gave, we made them the strongest tribe on the block because they could call in Apaches. They could call in an American fighting force within 10 minutes. And we made them stronger than the Shia militias. We made them stronger than Al-Qaeda. And Maliki was so afraid of it that he dismantled it, tore it apart, and actually accused the Americans of building a coup force against Shia dominance in Baghdad. And that's why he politicized the Iraqi security forces, dismantled the Sons of Iraq, and that's why ISIS rolled into a disenfranchised Sunni Iraq because the Iraqi government was a government for Tehran. I mean, when your average American hears this, they've got it's, it's shocking, right? Because this is not the this is not the the dominant narrative that you're going to hear in the media that you're going to hear from politicians, right? Um, yeah. But the U.S. military came in and had an objective, an enemy, and then it left. Uh, now, regardless of how what you feel or what you think about the initial invasion, right? There was no WMDs. Yeah. Uh, you know. You know, I, we all have our own thoughts and feelings on that. But at that, but what happened with the U.S. military presence and occupation afterwards that sh- shaped the future of Iraq, and that's sh- frankly shaped the future of the whole region but it seems that we keep making these what what mistakes time and time again whether it's a republican administration or a democratic administration and in many instances it's some of the same bureaucrats who somehow bury in and survive multiple administrations to make to keep repeating these mistakes and with frankly iran coming out on top it's it's the the fault of these experts you're talking about these experts that, that continue to brief decision makers on status quo strategies. That's why we have these forever wars. It's not the decision maker that's keeping us in the war. It's the experts that are keeping the decision maker in the war. And, the, and there's, a, there's about five experts in Iraq that should never walk into that place again, based on their ties to the Dawa party, based on their clients in Iraq, based on the fact that they're oil analysts they're getting paid by oil companies to push out uh, positive narratives. And in that second hat that they wear, the think tank hat, they tell U.S. government to continue the course. Uh, it, is, it is shameful. And, and let's, that's something let's name that I, names. Don't hold that's something I've talked, I've talked about when it comes to, uh, when it comes to uh, vetting these experts. Hmm. Uh, and I, I wanna, I'm going to start an organization called uh, Veterans Against Forever Wars. And all it is, is is guys like you and me that that raise the, the, the BS flag uh, when you see an expert that it isn't an expert. When you see somebody who has government contracts in Iraq saying that we should stay in Iraq, everything's really not that bad because that contract continues, meaning money continues to go into that that person's pocket, right? Uh, 
You cannot be a think tank member and be the managing partner for a strategic comms company in Iraq. Welcome to the swamp, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll name names. I want to name names with, with my lawyer saying, go for it. <laughs> but, but everybody who, who knows Iraq knows exactly who I'm talking mm -hmm. about. And it's, 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 this, it's this easy. Look at these individuals' analysis. How is it that one guy is pro-Iran militias in Iraq, yet anti-Iran militias in Yemen? Well, it's because of a payday. I mean, this thing happens often in Washington. You get, you get what, I'm, what I'm talking about here, yeah. right? And it's the you continue to obfuscate things until you can't anymore. So there's a, there's there's a there's an Iraq analyst who's who's been downplaying Iran's influence in Iraq during the whole counter ISIS campaign. Who is now sounding the alarm that Iraq that Iran now has these these militias. This is before Soleimani was killed, by the way. After Soleimani was killed, uh, he is now saying, "Well, oh, let's just not attack the militias. It's not a big deal. They're just they're just uh, lashing out." And, and it is so obvious. Is this bad analysis or is this paid for analysis? Hmm. And, and, and I just want decision makers. I went to a Pentagon briefing uh, after Soleimani was killed. And I sat in a room with people that should not have been in that room who were wearing think tank hats uh, that also had business interests in Iraq. And I actually called out one of the guys. I said, what is he doing in here? He is the managing partner for a strategic comms uh, company that works directly for the Dawa party. You called him out? And yeah, I did, right in front of the DOD operator. I said, you guys should know who you're talking to. And that's when I decided after that to, to start this group of Veterans Against Forever Wars. I like because, it. Because, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do this uh, if you continue to have the same people profiteering from the war. Now, you, you I think... I'm a principled guy. <laughs> I, I am. And I'm known as a, I'm not a counter narrative guy by default, but I'm against groupthink and all these positive narratives about Iraq and the government and how it's, it's not uh, influenced by Tehran. It is it, just a 180 degree, 180 degrees off. You, you know that. And um, it's, it gets frustrating because you keep seeing Americans reintroduced to this fight and they're being fed these narratives. And I like that they're being fed the same narratives because that makes a guy like me, a guy like you, mm. uh, somebody that decision makers seek out. Uh, I testify in Congress because of these experts, meaning the question is asked, who thinks differently from, from the groupthink analysis that I keep getting at DOD, State Department, and in the think tanks? And the name is, you need to talk to Mike Pregent. We don't agree with him, but you should talk to him. I'm an intel officer. I'm not, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm, I'm not prescient. I'm just looking at facts, people, leaders, history, and all these things. And it's very easy to see Maliki's still controlling a lot of things, even though he's not prime minister. The militias so, have more primacy than they have ever had. So and you really think I'm that, that oil money, that the swamp, and these bureaucrats that have been working for multiple administrations uh, that are still able to drive the narrative and influence policy, frankly, and we end up where we are today in Iraq and other places in the Middle East, you think there's a money, oil money, and special interest plays a big role? It, it does. Now, now it's, if that expert goes and say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm actually getting paid by BP to be an oil analyst. Uh, I do risk assessments for them, and they have a vested interest in staying in the Iraq oil market. 
Mm-hmm. That's who I am. Now let me tell you what I think you should do in Iraq. That decision maker is going to say, okay, this guy's biased, right? And right. he's going to weigh that assessment differently. I'm not saying they should be excluded from the room. I'm just saying the decision maker should know who they're talking to. And the other person say, listen, hey, I'm actually representing Maliki and, uh, and a couple other Iraqi politicians. And I'm telling you that uh, we need to stay there. We need to continue to provide funding. We shouldn't sanction these other people because they're being asked to tell the government not to sanction individuals. They're being paid to tell the government not to sanction individuals, yet they're wearing think tank hats. That should be disclosed. That should be illegal. Well, I mean, of course it should be illegal. A hundred percent, it should be illegal. Because American, Americans, uh, you know, mother, fathers, and, and and mothers are sending their sons and daughters to these wars because these experts are recommending stay the course strategies instead of successful strategies. That the next time an American's introduced to Iraq, he's an entrepreneur, or he's a he's a university uh, professor. Or he's, uh, you know, somebody that that is there in a civilian ca- capacity, as as opposed to being another American fatality or casualty in a country that keeps incubating existential threats because of the sectarianism of the Iraqi government and the U.S. unwillingness to recognize this failure. So should we just pull the plug? I mean, that's President Trump's instinct, isn't it? Well, I like what he said. I like what he said. And my recommendation was, okay, listen, we stay, we're not in Syria at the invitation of Damascus, so we don't have to be in Iraq at the invitation of, of Baghdad. We're, we're there because ISIS is there. We're there because you can't handle this terrorist threat. Uh, and in that, we find allies. And we can move our whole counter-ISIS campaign, counter-Iran campaign to Erbil. Uh, we can move it. We have such good relationships now that we could literally move it force it into any area we wanted it to be and have public support, whether that be the Shia South, whether that be Anbar, whether that be in our bill. But we, we should have a disfavor campaign for Baghdad. We need to designate Hadi al-Amri, the Badr Corps. We need to name and shame individuals and present them to the international court for killing unarmed civilians for wanting a job. For wanting and electricity. And these are members of the Iraqi government behind this. Yeah, remember, Qasem Soleimani moved the prime minister out of his chair and convened a security meeting and told Iraqi generals, told the, the Mohammed Halbusi, the Sunni COR member who's in the room also, all of these individuals that we call allies told them, this is how you kill protesters. Shut the internet off and shoot them. That's what we do. That's and that's what Qasem Soleimani was saying. That's what Qasem Soleimani said. And they did it. They followed his advice. They did exactly that. And then have you, have you seen one Iraqi official uh, handcuffed or put on the news for killing protesters? No, not one. Not one. And, and these are members of the Iraqi security forces. These are members of the militias wearing Iraqi security force uniforms. And this is the Shia population saying no to Shia religious dominance in Baghdad's uh, government, uh, military, and economic sectors. They're saying no to Iran, and they are the loudest voice to say this. When Sunnis say no to Iran, it's considered sectarian. When the Kurds say no to Iran, it's considered, you know, that we won't, you know it's, a, it's a sectarian issue, right? right but when the Shias say no to Iran, and the Shias say no to their government, and they're being killed by the very same militias that their, their sons have been asked to join, uh, that is a big deal. That is, a, that is an opportunity for the world to say, 
the least expensive option in Iraq is to support the revolution, to support the Shia uprising. These are secular Shia nationalists. These are not religious uh, uh, Shia. These are the ones rejecting all status quo politicians. They simply want a job, electricity, a passport, the ability to go to university, and the ability to dream. And they are being killed, and, they, and, and it's not stopping them moving. The only thing that's stopping them right now is the coronavirus, because they're listening to, to their leaders saying, hey, just stay inside right now. Let's, let's, let's wait till this coronavirus thing disappears, and then let's get back out there. And they'll there's get back to the streets. Yeah, there's a political party forming. There's a, there's a there's going to be a request. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this argument that the, the parliament needs to be dissolved. There needs to be early elections. But the the, the revolutionary parties, the October 17th uh, protesters, need to have a party uh, that that can compete. Uh, a a a party that can include Sunnis, Kurds, nationalists, real nationalists, not. Muqtada al-Sadr Nasrallah nationalist, meaning, meaning Nasrallah from Lebanese, Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's what's coming. It's the least expensive option is to actually support a democratic movement in Iraq. It's built for American support regardless of your party. Uh, it's, well, it's, I mean, that's the part of the irony here, right? That in the initial invasion, the U.S. was supposed to build a democracy in Iraq. Well, that obviously didn't happen. But here you are, you now have people, ordinary people, taking to the streets, wanting to overthrow the government that was essentially emplaced there. And now they're the ones calling for democracy. But our the U.S. support, the U.S. military support, is unfortunately going, it seems to me, the, to the wrong side. Yeah, the, the, you know, like you said, was it, was it really building a democracy or was it finding a counter-Saddam government mm. and and it was the simplicity in, in thinking here who hates al-qaeda and saddam as much as we do iran <laughs> the shia and we picked we picked the border core iski horse and said form a government and it's documented border core saturated the iraqi security forces in 2004 they became they became the force when we started and building for our listeners who don't know it's border core is is Iran's premier proxy. It's the one that they they developed during the Iran Iraq War to be uh, counter or to be uh, revolutionaries inside of Iraq to topple the Saddam's government to give Iraq to Iran, and we can't get them sanctioned, do they? We're trying to, because uh, the argument on the other side is uh, they're too entrenched in Iraqi politics, and I'm gonna go. That's exactly why you designate them. The the Bada Corps is not the Ba'ath Party. You don't have to be a member of the Bada Corps to have a job. The Bada Corps is a militia tied directly to Tehran. You can designate it, you can marginalize it, you can hurt it. Even the threat of designation marginalizes it. Uh, like General Petraeus said, deter- deterrence has been restored. We hit Qasem Soleimani. Uh, Iran thought they could start developing these new militias inside of Iraq to attack U.S. bases. And the president said any attack by any of these militias, regardless of how new they are, will be considered a direct attack from Iran and Iran will be punished. And Iran stood down for the time being. Now they can World harass. War III didn't break out. Yeah, they can harass. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the left's argument constantly. It's the Iran dealer war. No, not really. It turns out the Islamic Republic needed the Iran deal more than we, we did. Uh, it's, it's this, this is, we're going to start a war with Iran. This is what a war with Iran looks like. It's mm. a paper tiger when it comes to a conventional military. 
its rocket force is, is, is something that it doesn't necessarily control like it thought it did. Uh, Nasrallah is not willing to unleash all of his rockets on Israel because Iran asks him to. There's constantly a, a face-saving gesture by both Lebanese Hezbollah when it comes to Israel and Iran when it comes to the United States. And we're in a place now where this is what war with Iraq, Iran looks like. Iran will do these provocations in order to get sanctions relief. It's not working. Instead, they're getting more That sanctions. seems counterintuitive. It, but, but it worked for 40 years ago. And now it's not working anymore. And, and it's great that it's not working anymore. And now we're getting European countries to actually see it. And this whole, this whole narrative, we need to have sanctions relief so that the supreme leader can take care of his people. The supreme leader has never put his people ahead of, its, of, of, of his ballistic missile program, has never put his people ahead of his uh, you know, the, the spread of the revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, he's never put his people ahead of the regime. So any money that goes to the regime will not be spent on the people. In fact, money that went to the regime and supplies that went to the regime, the regime sold to China. You know, we got to stop thinking the regime is somehow, if, we just, if we're just nice to it, it'll behave. It's right. not diplomacy, diplomacy first, Michael. Yeah, it's, it's like Ben Rhodes said, you know, um, the echo chamber extends far past the media. Uh, ben Rhodes said this of the media that, it's easy to put something out there. Most of these journalists have never been overseas, don't know anything about it, but they'll believe anything I say and they'll put it out there. There's still that thinking in our, in our intel community. There's that thinking inside of our, of our uh, think tanks. And what I mean by that thinking is there's, there's a group of people and I'll talk to decision makers. And they say, hey, everybody in the intelligence community looks like they're under the age of 30. Well, if you're under the age of 30, how old were you on 9-11? On you know, how old were you in 2007? So there's, right. there, there's, this, there's this thinking of, of, of young intel analysts that, that bought into the Obama narrative that Iran is, is right and the United States policy on Iran is wrong. Hmm. Not all intel people, but you, but you and I both, both saw it when we were working at DIA that a lot of these analysts became advocates for their portfolio. They sure did. But, you had, you had analysts that covered Prime Minister Maliki that would defend his actions. I'm like, you're not supposed to defend his actions. You're supposed to tell us what he's doing and tell us how to, to either support him if he's right or undermine him if he's wrong. You're not supposed to advocate for him. And I found this with analysts covering ISIS also. They would say, well, this, is the, the, this terrorist army cannot be defeated. The ideology is 100% uh, you know, uh, consistent. And... Uh, there's, there are no schisms. I'm like, no, in every organization, there's schisms, there's jealousy, there's paranoia, there's things to exploit, mm -hmm. there's inconsistencies. And you have intel analysts uh, too often start advocating for their target set. I mean, targeteers are different. They, they like to kill stuff. That's fine. But analysts that are looking at individuals in government, they, they start advocating for them. Remember our jam team at DIA? The Jaysh al-Mahdi. They loved Muqtad al-Sadr. They, they love would, They would say he was, he was like, <laughs> oh, he's the best guy. I'm like, your job's not to love the guy. You're confusing something. We don't give you a portfolio so you can marry it. Mm. We give you a portfolio so you can cheat on it. <laughs> so you can, <laughs> you know, so you can, you can find out its weaknesses and its strengths and exploit it. Right. It's not there for you to coddle. It's not there for you to praise. And, and I think that's one of our biggest problems. Well, you know, what, what's for me is, is as an observer standing back and now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm back out here in the region 
you just find all this, it's all the same names that keep coming back, whether it's in Baghdad or in Washington, and we're still in the same mess. Yeah. Like you said, Brett McGurk was, was Bush's guy, then he was Obama's guy, then he was Trump's guy, now he's Obama's guy again. Now he's, now he's Biden's guy. <laughs> now, he's, he, now he's Biden's he's, guy. He's uh, the only guy that can do a 180 four times <laughs> and not be discovered. <laughs> only in the swamp. Only now he's a likable guy. Uh, have you met him? Of course, many times. He's a likable he's a guy, right? And, Very likable. If you look Very at his portfolio, if, if I was to have his portfolio, I would say he's a likable guy and that's a weakness. I mean, he wants to be liked. He wants to convince you that everything he's saying, he agrees with you. Yet when you see what he's doing out there, it's the complete opposite. And, and it, that's all too familiar uh, so, with when it comes to decision makers. Like, Mike, I agree with you. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, yeah, we're trying to do all these things. It's just, you know, it takes a little bit of time. Well, that's the playbook being used against these guys. That's the Iraqi playbook. The, the Iraqi chess player is sitting there across from the 17th version of an American. And he, he, in, within five minutes, he can tell you what American he is. Is he the Lawrence of Arabia wannabe? Is he the good idea fairy? Is he even want to be? Does he even want to be here? Does he have a good idea? Is he new to me? As soon as you're, you're identified as an American he's seen before, he has a playbook to use against you. Mm. And it's the, uh, it takes time. Of course, to hit Iran, we want to push back, but it's very difficult. We need more money. <laughs> and it's, you've heard that. You know, we've all heard that behind closed doors. Uh, one of my favorite phrases by a former PM designate is, I want to get back to the day when we could reach across the border and slap Iran in the face. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great, right? Behind closed doors. Right. And then the well, same designate goes out there and says that we should lift sanctions on Iran. Right. It's like, you know, don't, don't, uh, and it's easy to do because Americans have that same weakness. We want to be liked. We want. Well, are we just be, naive? We are, we are, we are idealistic. Are we just naive? In that, in that we're powerful naive, military in the also, world. It's intelligence also, capability. Yeah. Well, the intelligence capability. So let's, let's talk about that, right? So the Democrats demanded intelligence that Qasem Soleimani was planning an attack. Right. You and I both know that intelligence doesn't confirm that an attack is coming. Intelligence hints at one. And we saw a rehearsal. We saw a rehearsal when Kitab Hezbollah went into they the- They always rehearsed before. And stormed the embassy. That was a rehearsal. And the chatter in Iraq was that Qasem Soleimani was going to put Abu Mehdi al-Mohandis in as prime minister, just force him in, seize the embassy with the protesters in Baghdad. I'm putting protesters in quotations right now, mm -hmm. uh, which they would not have been. They would have been militia members flying Iraqi flags and not the mm -hmm. protesters that were out there, uh, to take the embassy, take American hostages, and trade them for sanctions relief. Right? Not kill them, but trade them for sanctions relief. So that was imminent. No, it, we... we, we there were hints that it was imminent, but mm -hmm. intelligence would only confirm it after the fact. Mm. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't confirm it. The gone are the days of uh, the Cold War where somebody's going to pick up a phone and say, we're planning an attack against the right. American <laughs> Tomorrow. That was the Russian accent, not a, <laughs> <laughs> You know, those days are over, man. Uh, intel doesn't work that way. Now intel is best when, when if you hear something, and the person identifies himself, and this is something with the JCPOA, just, and I'm getting into- That's the here. Iran nuclear deal. The Iran deal, yeah. So uh, when I was talking to a, co a congressman, he said, well, I've seen the intelligence that Iran is complying with the Iran deal. And I said, did it sound something like this? 
Uh, my name is so-and-so. I'm in charge of Iran's nuclear program, and I'm compliant with all articles within the JCPOA and all directives within the, <laughs> the Nuclear Non-Proliferation <laughs> Treaty. And he just looked at me, and I said, that's messaging, man. That's not intel. So it's like you that's picking up the phone and saying, I'm not committing any crimes, or I have not committed any crimes today, nor do I plan on committing any crimes tomorrow. Click. And that's exactly what Prime Minister Maliki did in 2005 and 2006, and that intel got into the feed. And NSA consistently said that Maliki was not a sectarian actor because of that platform that we gave Maliki in 2005 when State Department issued every Iraqi politician a cell phone. Remember those cell phones, Ube? Yeah, MCI, I think. And then, and then, and then we actually thought that we could use those as collection platforms. And all we did was give them a, hey, that wasn't me at the, at the, the convenience store last night robbing it. I was home with my wife. So from you know, the WMDs to getting these guys right, to understanding who we were dealing with on the Iraqi side, we just kept getting it wrong. There's always people that got it right. It's just whether or not they're listened to, right? And I think that's, that's one, of, one of the reasons I'm able to say what I'm able to say and do what I'm able to do, because people remember me banging on the desk and warning about it. They remember it's not popular. the same thing. So they're, when you were an intelligence officer on the ground in Iraq, was there a moment, or what was the moment, when you sort of just realized, what are we doing? And that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. When, so um, one moment when we, they can pinpoint. Okay, so we had 90,000 Sunnis in the Sons of Iraq, the awakening, right? And we had an agreement with Maliki, agreement again in quotations, that Maliki would, would bring in 20,000 of them, into the, or 20% of that force, into the Iraqi security forces. Instead, Maliki created his own Shia Sons of Iraq. Remember that? Yeah. And out of that, that uh, th there was no need for, for a Shia Sons of Iraq because they already had the militias and the Iraqi security forces. The Sunni Sons of Iraq was meant to deal with, is a counterbalance to all of that. So Maliki creates this pocket uh, of Shia volunteers to, to work in the Sons of Iraq, which is a, a local security initiative where basically you build up a force and they were a static uh, neighborhood watch. He took those individuals and put them into two brand new divisions, uh, the third and the fourth national police divisions. And we went and briefed General Petraeus on that. And we said, Prime Minister Maliki just, just uh, met his obligation to incorporate 20% of the force. Problem is he incorporated 20%. Uh, he, he basically used all of that Shia uh, Sons of Iraq uh, pool to fill that, fill that quota. Right, and, pull a fast one, basically. And General Petraeus said, well, that's what, that's what sovereign countries do. And I, right there, I knew, I knew we, were, we were done. That, you know, we, we remember uh, one of our, one of our, our, our friends, uh, PJ, we'll just say PJ for now. Um, when he went to re-engage the Sons of Iraq after ISIS rolled into Iraq, he was met with uh, Sons of Iraq leaders who were so upset about the U.S. betrayal and the U.S. abandonment of the Sunni Sons of Iraq security initiative that all of the military coins that this, this Sons of Iraq leader had, uh, he threw at the feet of, of PJ and said, these are all broken promises. And, and that's even, that's but so even that, Ube, it, Iraq has gotten so bad that even that has now been forgiven. The U.S. betrayal has been forgiven. The U.S. giving Iraq to Iran has been forgiven. And now Iraqis are simply saying, we, we support you, help us shed a light on this sectarian government. And we don't have to go in with military force. We just need to designate 
uh, bring individuals to the international court. If the United States brings an individual to the international court, that has a lot of weight, hmm. a lot of weight for killing Iraqis, for killing Americans, for being tied directly to the IRGC Quds Force, for being directed by the IRGC Quds Force, being trained by the Iraq, uh, for the IRGC Quds Force. And I'll just say this in this whole coronavirus climate, we keep hearing that every life is precious, right? Right. Is every life precious in Syria, Ube? It hasn't been since since the civil war started. 600,000 Syrians have been killed. Is every life precious in Iraq? No, thousands have been killed in these protests in Iran, in Iraq, Lebanon. Is every life really precious? It's not. The only reason we're saying every life is precious now because coronavirus got out of its backyard and it infected the world so the world cares about itself. It's a selfish reflection on what's important. And this easy tag of every life is precious is, is, is just not accurate. If that were true, we'd do something about the protesters being killed in Iraq. If that were true, we'd do something about what's happened in Syria. We wouldn't be trying to normalize Assad. So we have to call out these these feel-good hashtags with with actual foreign policy that matters. And, uh, you know, the foreign policy that that we're recommending, that I think you and I both advocate, uh, is is human rights focused, uh, has has, uh, uh, justification to use the Leahy law on it, the, the Global Magnitsky Act on it, international human rights laws on it. And yet, you know, we, we can't get any traction. Well, we What's happening any- in Iraq is built for Democrat support, for Western democracy support. This protest movement is built for the world to care about it. it we can't let Iraq become another Syria. Well, that for me is having traveled to Syria on numerous occasions after spending, you know, well over a year, a year and a half in Iraq, I just saw the playbook just repeating itself in Syria and seeing that in slow motion. And every step of the way, as it kept getting worse in Syria, it was just a vicious deja vu from what I had seen in Iraq. And eventually U.S. troops would be involved and we were still getting it wrong. Yeah, when the, when the Islamic State and Jabhat al-Nusra were, were fighting together in, in Syria in 2011, were joining, I said something at CENTCOM, and it was, it was brushed off. I said, it's not going to be too long before these guys, these, these uh, Sunni jihadist groups, look over the left shoulder and say, hey, if we can take on Assad's military, we sure as hell can take on Iraq's. And it happened. It's not hard to see these things coming. It's as simple as a looking at a threat and seeing where the most vulnerable uh, place is for that threat to exploit. And Iraq was built for exploitation by Sunni jihadist groups based on the sectarian dominance of Shia religious parties in, in Baghdad. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting with your average viewer and, you know, frankly, your average American doesn't realize that, you know, the way that we were able to defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Islamic State in Iraq wasn't by blasting our way through every, just as you said, through every Sunni village was done smartly. You co-opted people. You used sons of Iraq's locals. It was a bottom-up operation, which meant you worked through with the locals, Sunni tribes. 
you yeah. gave them contracting money to rebuild uh, was more butter, less guns. And you worked with the people that uh, provided local security and they gave us everybody's names. This guy, this yeah. guy, you know, so it was the Sunnis that were giving up the extre Sunni extremists because they were the ones oppressing the Sunnis. And we didn't bring in Peshmerga we didn't, uh, or Shia militias from a thousand kilometers away, right? Nope. We worked with the sheikhs. Exactly. Um, they know the neighborhoods. They know who's supposed to be in the neighborhoods, who's not supposed to be there. They know who the foreigners are. And, and one of the biggest problems early on, we would go into a, we'd do a patrol in Mosul into a neighborhood. And we would um, talk to the people in there and ask them if there was any Al-Qaeda present. They would say no. And as soon as we left, Al-Qaeda would move in and ask those same people what we asked them. So we started leaving behind uh, a couple snipers or, or, or a, a capability to take these guys out when they came back in the neighborhood and started selling that as a way to shore up the strength of these local leaders. It is exactly what you said uh, about supporting supporting local actors, supporting, supporting the Sunnis against these groups. Uh, you have to make them the, the strongest, the strongest tribe. Uh, it's, it, it's that easy. And they're asking for us to do it again. And, and everybody's asking us to do it again. ISIS is not being taken on by these militias. Under the guise of fighting ISIS, these militias are moving into Anbar and other places, not to take out ISIS, but to secure a land bridge through Syria to, to threaten the Levant, a land bridge that has been targeted by the United States and Israel. And the interesting thing about Israel, uh, hitting targets inside of Iraq, there are four times, now you, know, you and I both know how perception works in Iraq. The Iraqis believe it was Israel that conducted these airstrikes inside of Iraq, yet there were no protests against Israel because the Iraqis viewed That's this right. as an attack on Iran and not an attack on Iraq. Same That's thing with the Israeli how, strikes against the Iranians in, in Syria. I can't tell you how many yeah. Syrians I've spoken to in Idlib and other places in northern Syria that have no problem with the Israeli Air Force taking out Iranian and Lebanese Hezbollah forces what, inside Syria. What a, what a willing partner we have on the ground that we're ignoring. You know what I mean? We have, we have the Iraqi population wanting us to do something against Iran, cheering the fact that we took out Soleimani. Uh, even though those narratives said uh, we've now turned the anti-Iran protesters into anti-U.S. protesters, not true, not true at all. And that's something that, that this this think tank guy said in that meeting at DOD. He said, "This is, you want? I'm gonna give you an exact quote. You ready for this? Yes, go ahead. You guys killed Soleimani. Why did you do that? We had him on the ropes. We had Iran on the ropes. Barham Salah was against Iran. The protesters were against Iran. Now everybody's against us." And I. I I stopped him. Mid, I stopped him, and I said, that, "That's completely inaccurate. Everything you're saying is a a talking point <laughs> that has already been. You know, all you got to do is look on the ground, and you can see that. But you, you hear how laughable that is. That Barham Saleh was somehow pushing back against Iran. And so Barham Saleh was the the president or of president of Iraq. Of Iraq. Uh, another compromised presidential candidate. Uh, we did, Brett McGurk celebrated this. We got Abd al-Mehdi, he's Shia. We got Barham Salah, he's Kurdish. And we have Mohammed Halbusi, he's Sunni. The only problem was that these three individuals were agreed upon in Beirut with a meeting between Qasem Soleimani, Nasrallah, and Muqtadr al-Sadr. That's how we got this grouping. This is a more dysfunctional version or a real-life dysfunctional version of Game of Thrones. 
it, it's a more successful one. <laughs> Except we're not using any, imagine being the most capable military force with the best intelligence and, and the most dedicated and professional fighting force on the ground being told you can't do anything, being told it's not true, and looking the other way because, because uh, cautious decision makers don't want to commit. And, and that's, the, that's the problem is our decision makers have two-year life cycles, whether you be a secretary of state, secretary of defense, the political capital a president has after being reelected uh, or elected for the first time, the, you have two-year windows to be successful. And if you don't have the right decision maker in that two-year window, you get 17 years in Iraq. You get 19 years in Afghanistan. And that's what we've had. So you're saying the stage could very well be set for the return of ISIS and Daesh. It, it, it's already there. It, it, we're, we're absent the the execution videos, the Quentin Tarantino, you know, execution films. Uh, we're, we're not going to see the uh, parade of ISIS vehicles rolling into a Sunni town, mm. but they're in the shadows. They're operating the way Al-Qaeda operated. They're not putting flags over cities because they can't shoot down American aircraft. Mm. Uh, but they have no resistance and no opposition if they wanted to move into these places. And part of the strategy by Baghdad was to destroy these cities so ISIS couldn't move into anything. Mm. You know, destroy West Mosul so West Mosul's less attractive. Uh, destroy Ramadi so they can't come back into Ramadi. Destroy half of Fallujah because of the, the same kind of thing. And then exterminate, disappear uh, Sunni military Jamels and, and Jafar al-Sukr, which is south of Baghdad, and then change its name to Jafar al-Nasr. You know, it's... it's Demographic it's, re-engineering, just like what they're doing in Syria. Exactly, exactly. Minus the... In Syria, they're doing exactly the same thing, then they're rebuilding things, and then what? Raising the rent so nobody can come back that lived there before, and they choose who gets to come back by changing the demographics. Uh, it's the same playbook, and we have... Uh, you know, the guy working in Iraq a year ago isn't there anymore. It's a new guy in the U.S. side. New people in the NSC work in Iraq now that didn't work it before. Almost every American uh, working in Iraq, like actually designated to work Iraq in the intelligence community, in DOD, and the NSC are new to the fight. They may have visited it in 2007, but they're new to the current contemporary operational environment. Uh, so it just we, seems to me that the guys back like Jeffries and Joe Rayburn, who are working Syria and other places to be the experts on Iraq in, as a, as a side gig hmm. because it's that bad. Man, and I'm not faulting any generals on the ground, any American generals on the ground, because if you look at it from a force protection standpoint, you're outnumbered 20 to one and you don't have a willing partner to take on, uh, the militias. The Americans are moving back to American bases uh, that can be protected against rockets, mortar fire, and missiles. But so you know, Alamo style, protected, not protect. Yeah, Alamo style, but not to be protected from ISIS attacks. To be protected from militia attacks, these same militias that are part of Iraq's security apparatus, the same militias that have primacy, the same militias that have a political party who decides who the prime minister is the same militias that the Iraqi security forces won't confront. That's how bad it is. Man, I mean... Can you imagine that? you imagine this in 2007 if 
We, we would destroy these guys in 2007 if they were doing this. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, at some point, can we ever get it right? Really, I mean, after 17 yeah, we years. We've got an opportunity now. And the Iraqis are a willing partner, not the Iraqi government, the Iraqis. Mm-hmm. The people. Because the Iraqis have forgiven us our crime of, of giving Iraq to Iran. And now they're trying to say, this is how you help us. The protesters aren't asking for us to kill people. They're not, well, they're asking us for target, target individuals, yes, but not to put a military force between the protesters and the, and the government to protect it. Mm. They're just simply asking us to put a spotlight on it, bring some names to the criminal courts, um, bring some media to Baghdad to show what, what the Iraqi government is doing. You know, we need Anderson Cooper in Baghdad. What would that do? That would be huge. An Anderson Cooper in, in, in Tehran, an Anderson Cooper in uh, Beirut, in the places where protesters are being killed by, uh, by forces tied directly to the IRGC Quds Force, you know, by forces that are being protected by their governments. You know, this is, this is a violation of the Leahy law. We can't give money to the Iraqi government if it's killing its civilians with an illegal militia that tortures, well, these are uh, illegal militias just like have, ISIS. And well, many of them have American weapons, right? That yeah. were supposed to have been given to the Iraqi army, but somehow, you know, to yeah. put tanks. Remember the M1A1s? Yeah, General Funk uh, said something, and I just, I, I, you know, like you asked me that question earlier. When did you see that, that this was lost, that we were going in the wrong direction? Well, General Funk said something during the counter-ISIS campaign. Hey, listen, we give this equipment to the Iraqis. What they do with it afterwards is, is none of our business. That's not true, sir. That's not true. <laughs> he said that. He said that. The Leahy law says no. <laughs> uh, End-use agreements say no. And the State Department has a built-in capability to see where this stuff goes so that if it goes into the wrong hands, we can hold the Iraqi government responsible. So those are the comments that, that bother me when you hear these, uh, these decision makers say things like that. And uh, it, it's just, it's that, it's that bad. No, it's that, it's that bad, and it may force the U.S. to commit even more troops in the future. Well, we uh, have to go back. If we don't get this right, we're just going to end up going back to deal with existential threats that keep getting, uh, you know, keep keep having this rebirth in, in Iraq's uh, disenfranchised communities. It's not that the Sunnis support these groups. It's that the Sunnis have no one to call when these groups roll in. When ISIS rolled into Mosul, if you and I lived there on a city block, we couldn't pick up the phone and call the police. There was no police to be called. We couldn't call the military. Yo, there was fuck. no military to be called. We basically said, this gang is now going to rule Mosul because no one's coming to help us. Hmm. And, if we, uh, if, and, and, and if we fight them, the Iraqi government's not going to help us fight them. And the Iraqi government sees no difference between us and them because we are simply the Sunnis up there, former Ba'athist, uh, ISIS collaborators, ISIS sympathizers. And this, this one think tank guy uh, that I was talking about in that DOD meeting actually said, all Sunnis in these cities where ISIS exists are collaborators. Wow. And it's, it's like, you know, and this guy had the completely opposite position in 2007. When money, he was in uniform in 2007, and he's a highly paid civilian, a managing director of a strategic communications firm in in, uh, in Baghdad, uh, with offices in Baghdad, Beirut, and Najaf. What does that mean? 
<laughs> what does that mean, Ube? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it tells you really you can only lead, lead to one conclusion. And his same, his same not fighting company, for Team America. His same group actually blacklists Americans that don't subscribe to their uh, to their uh, strategic comms uh, assistance. You know, their package. If they don't use this firm in Iraq, the Americans get blacklisted by this firm. Really, they have that. Kind of, they have a great connection with Iraqi politicians because their founder. Uh, used to work for the U.S. government and did a lot of engagements with the the Iraqi governments and then turn the Iraqi government and turned that into a private sector uh, business to exploit that network. So there's so much corruption here. I mean, we hear about the deep state, but this is you know you've seen it. You got to follow the money. I've seen it. I know it. I've had drinks with it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I've. I've read tarot cards with it. <laughs> I've seen it all, <laughs> and uh, and it's and it's 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 prof- it's pure profiteering. Um, the general that was responsible for advocating for Case Kazali's release is doing the same thing with oil contracts in southern Iraq as a civilian, and it's uh, and I used to work directly for this general, uh, and it's. It's. Uh, I remember one time this general said to me, uh, "You know, Case Kazali is very charismatic. He can get anyone to believe anything he says inside of inside of Cropper." And I said, "Yeah, even outside of Cropper, he didn't pick up on it." But <laughs> and Cropper you know, was a detention facility, though. Case Kazali detention was facility helping. where this general was meeting with Case Kazali, and we were preparing him for his for his for his briefs and and telling him who Case Kazali was and and countering uh, his positive narrative of Case Kazali. And and uh, it's funny because he he goes case promised me that he would uh, answer his cell phone anytime I called him, and as soon as case was released, case uh, threw his cell phone away and was with in Iran within twelve hours. I say it like it is, Ube. You uh, that's that's what I love you for. Thanks for keep fighting the good fight, and you know we'll we'll definitely have you back on again on the podcast. Uh, not just because you're one of my best friends, but you're one of the few people out there who's who who's seen it, who's been through the whole run through the whole gamut of the, the saga in Iraq and the Iraq war and the many other wars in Iraq where the sprung out of sprung out of Iraq. So thanks for fighting the good fight. So what was the name of that organization you wanted to you start? What'd you call it? Veterans against veterans against forever wars, man. It's just going to be basically, we are going to vet the experts that are briefing decision makers to stay in these endless wars for the wrong reasons. Uh, and, uh, it, it's something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about it, but you know how this works. You got to go find the, uh, Find the donors. <laughs> I but love it. it. it yeah, man. It's um, it, it would it would brief well to to parents. It would brief well to the military. So listen, when you're sent into war, you will know that the people that were talking to the DOD, talking to the White House, talking to the National Security Council, were vetted by a veterans organization uh, of veterans of these wars to ensure that whoever's briefing decision makers is credible, is legitimate, and doesn't have business interests in the country. Veterans Against Forever Wars. Yes, sir. Michael Prejean. Thank you, brother. God bless. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks, Ube. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Good work out there. 